You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. I'm going to read this passage, a passage that we read at the very beginning of this month, probably one of the most famous passages in the book of uh, Job. It's Job 19, verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 23. So it says something like this. Job 19, 23 says, Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that, uh, that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in rock forever. So Job is prefacing what he's about to say, like, Oh, may these words be written down forever and ever and ever. And then the very famous line in the book of Job, maybe you've heard of it before, Verse 25 says, um, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's a, it's a phrase that uh, I've heard in many worship songs. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And if you know the book of Job, uh, any, any, any detail, if you've been here coming this month, you know that Job suffers immensely. His children die. He loses his prosperity, his wealth, um, etc. And he's suffering. He's got a horrible disease. And yet he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet, my fle- yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I myself will see, my eyes and not another, my heart faints within me. But let's pray this morning as we begin. God, we do thank you, we praise you, God, we praise you alone for, for the book of Job and, and how the book of Job teaches us that you do show up to those that are suffering how you are still a good, just, and an amazing God that cares about us and loves us. God, help us as we study, as we conclude our study of the book of Job today. God, that we might understand some of the mystery of, of evil in this world, the problem of evil and suffering. But God, we do know that you are a good God. You are holy and just. So we praise you and thank you. And everybody screamed? Amen. Amen. Sweet. Let's talk about lawyers real quick. Anybody like lawyers? Yeah, one guy, sweet. Um, yeah, lawyers, uh, there's always a bunch of jokes about lawyers. Um, like, uh, maybe you've heard this one, how do you know if a lawyer is lying? His mouth is moving, yeah. Or uh, um, a, a new client had just come in to see a famous lawyer. Can you tell me how much you charge, said the client. Of course, the, the lawyer replied, I charge $200 to ask three questions. That is a be- bit steep, isn't it? Well, yes, it is, said the lawyer. And what's your third question? (laughs) Um, How do you get a group of lawyers to smile for a picture? Just say fees. (laughs) How many lawyers does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, Obviously, 65. 42 to sue the power company for insufficiently supplying power or negligence, uh, failure to prevent the surge that made the ball burn out. 14 to sue the electrician who wired the house and nine to sue the bulb manufacturers. <laughs> Anyways, one last one. This is more of a story, uh, supposedly true. A lawyer in Charlotte, North Carolina, purchased a box of very rare and expensive cigars. He insured them against fire and, amongst other things, within a month, having smoked his entire stockpile of these great cigars and without yet having made his first premium payment on the policy, the lawyer filed a claim with the insurance company. And his claim, the lawyer said that the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. (laughs) The insurance company refused to pay the claim, citing that it was for obvious reason that the man had consumed the cigars in a normal way. The The lawyer sued, actually, and then won... Um, in delivering the ruling, the judge agreed, however, with the insurance company that the claim was frivolous. The judge nevertheless uh, sided with the lawyer and, uh, and see, let's see, the, the cigars were insurable and guaranteed that they, they must be paid. Rather than endure the lengthy, costly appeal of the process, the insurance company accepted the ruling and paid the $15,000 to the lawyer for his loss of the rare uh, cigars. But after the lawyer cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson with his own insurance claim and testimony that the previous case uh, had that convicted him of 24 months in jail and $24,000 fine. Those crazy lawyers, they're so crazy. But imagine yourself um, 
like if you lived, America is, is usually a very just society. We have, we have court and we have lawyers. We have all these processes and, and these rules about you can't just go to jail for, without cause. You're innocent before proven guilty. But let's say you live in another country that, that isn't as fair maybe as the U.S. And one day the government just takes you. A bunch of policemen arrest you. You're thrown into prison. You're stripped from your family. You're stripped from your wealth. And you're thrown in prison. You're horribly suffering there. Wouldn't you want a lawyer? Wouldn't, wouldn't you be screaming out for justice, someone to mediate between you and the law? And so lawyers are necessary, a part of, I think, a society, even though we make fun of them and joke about them a lot. But if there's not a lawyer, then, then the things, you don't have someone to mediate between you and the, the ruling power in the land, then that, that causes that just causes more despair and that you realize that the situation is not just. And so consider Job. The Job that we are studying in the book of Job is, is what I just said. He's stripped from his family. Ten of his children die in one day in a tornado. Job is given a horrible skin disease and he's sitting uh, on, on, on dirt, scraping his skin with a piece of pottery. And uh, all his wealth had been taken from him. He has nothing left. And, and he cries out at one point in this book, which I think is so interesting and unique about Job's situation, because he realizes that God is the one ultimately responsible for his suffering. And God is making him suffer. And we studied that in depth uh, a couple Sundays ago. If that, if that interests you and you didn't, weren't here for that, you could podcast it. But Job cries out for a mediator, someone to take the place, the middle ground between himself and God, the one that is making him suffer, and he's being punished. Like, it's, at one point he says, God, if you would just, you know, bring your charges against me that I might know what I did wrong, then I would understand. And, and in this verse, Job chapter 9, this is Job speaking about God. Job says, he is not a, a mere mortal like me that I may answer him. So God is not a mere mortal or that we may confront each other in court. But that's throughout the book of Job. Uh, Job is asking for that day in court. If only God would listen to me, bring his charges against me. You know, here I am in prison being unjustly punished. And if only God would at least tell me what I did wrong. And then this verse, verse 33, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. And that's Job's cry, which, which we will get to um, at the end of this lesson as we conclude the book of Job and hopefully wrap our minds somewhat around this idea of a mediator ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus. That's kind of where we're going today. But Job cries out, if only someone, here's Job at the bottom, God at the top, if only someone could mediate between us. If only there was some lawyer who, or an umpire, some translations say, someone to stand between us so that, we, so that I could get justice. And, and then, of course, we know from the book of Job that, that God doesn't even send a mediator. He comes himself and tells Job that he's just, and we have that beautiful narrative. But one final joke that I found on a lawyer's uh, joke website, and I guess it's more insightful than it is funny. It says this, what's the difference between a good lawyer and a great lawyer? A good lawyer knows the law. A great lawyer knows the judge. And so ultimately this idea that, that Jesus comes and he knows the judge. He knows God because he is, in fact, one in being with God. So we'll get to that today. Uh, we'll kind of take a roundabout way of getting there. But um, today we are going to conclude the book of Job. But before we jump into that, some announcements. And there is uh, just a, a few important ones. The first one is that if you're newish to the Mill Sunday School, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, on, the t- on the tables, there's these new, new I think it says, uh, visitor card if you want to fill that out. And then on your way out in the lobby, there's a table. There'll be some nice people standing behind the table as you leave. If you give them that, they will give you a CD, a worship CD. And the worship CD is from a Friday night. That's our main uh, college and 20-somethings ministry. It's called The Mill, and it happens at 7 o'clock every Friday. And, and, and so the, the CD that you get is a worship series, or worship uh, set, uh, worship music from The Mill on a Friday night. That's our gift. So that's for you if you're brand new. We're glad that you're here. The next announcement is next week. Everybody say next week. There's no Sunday school. Everybody say no Sunday school. 
I know, it's brutal. And why? why? Is there a holiday? Is it Christmas? Is it Easter? What's going on next week? Well, it's not really a, an official national holiday, but it is something that we do uh, at the mill every year, once a year in February. And that is we as the mill leadership team, everyone that uh, is on the leadership team, we take our annual leadership retreat, which covers the whole weekend, Saturday through Sunday. And so we won't be back next week for the Sunday school. And it is Super Bowl Sunday, so you can think about it like that, like no Sunday school, because Super Bowl Sunday holiday. That doesn't make as much sense. So you, do, you really have to know the real reason. So put it in your calendar so you don't get up early and come to Sunday school and then realize that there's no coffee here. That would be disastrous for your life. And, um, and so next week, no Sunday school. The reason is our leadership retreat where we as leaders will go up into the mountains and, and Aaron will be there and the mill staff will be there and we'll, we'll talk about direction and future and leadership and service to the mill. And so it's really a retreat for our leaders, a way of honoring them. And um, yeah, and if you're interested in being a mill leader, like the people that come to Sunday school early or the people that on the Friday nights stay after or make the coffee, if you're interested in being part of our leadership service team, uh, you can get an application from the mill office or go online and read more about it. So that's that. So next week, no Sunday school. So sorry, but we, it's our way of um, kind of honoring our leaders. Cool? Everybody cool? Cool with that? All right, sweet. Let's talk about today the, the, the little problem of evil. I say little jokingly because it is actually a huge problem. The problem of evil. And it's a problem because, uh, let me just have this guy word it for us, this guy, if you've ever taken a philosophy class or a 17th century, 1700s, actually 18th century history class, you might know this guy. Do you know who he is? His name's at the bottom. David Hume, have you heard of him before? He's, he's a pretty big philosopher that you would have to study in a philosophy class. And um, he was, he's known as the great skeptic, kind of the big atheist of his day in the 1700s. He's known as the great skeptic. Um, he's also kind of known for bringing rationality to the, the philosophies of our age. And uh, his big idea was that human knowledge arises only from sense experience. And so if you can experience God, then you can prove God. But he, he would argue that you can't truly experience God. He was a big atheist. And he said uh, that the problem of evil is this. He wrote it out very rationally. Of course, the problem of evil existed before David Hume, but he wrote it out in a very interesting way, very equation-like and it says this. So this, this is, in fact, the problem of evil. It's maybe one of the reasons why David Hume, the great atheist, did not believe in God. Maybe you have some friends, or if you're in here, kind of questioning, does God even exist? Maybe some of the thoughts that would come to your mind or to a true atheist mind is, why does bad stuff happen to good people? If God is all good and all powerful, couldn't he have stopped it? I guess God doesn't really exist because bad stuff happens. So here it is. I'll read it off the board very slowly, kind of antidotically, so that we can understand this, this statement. And this is uh, David Hume's statement about the problem of evil, what it is. So it's a question. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not all-powerful. And so I'll stop there and kind of explain that. If God is willing to prevent able, uh, evil... But he's not able, then he's not all-powerful. Like, let's say you're upstairs uh, high in a building, looking down on a street, and you see a bus coming uh, for a person that's crossing the street. And let's say they're blind. And so you're looking down at this horrible suffering and evil that's about to happen. And so you're banging on the window trying to get the attention of the blind person, but you're unable to. You're way too up high. You're looking down. You're not able to help in this situation. And so you want to help. You want to, if you were on the ground, you'd scream out, you'd run, you'd help the blind man crossing the road, but you are not able because you are not all powerful. And so is God willing to prevent evil? Maybe like you in this building, but not able, then he is not all powerful. So that's one side of the problem of evil. The other side is this. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malicious. Is he able, but not willing? And so let's say another example. Let's say you look out your, your, um, your house one day and there's a shady looking man in the neighbor's uh, driveway and he's, he just looks shady. Maybe he's wearing all black and he probably has a mustache. And he is taking the lug nuts off your neighbor's car so that the, your, the, your neighbor's car's wheel would fall, fall off 
when your neighbor started driving, maybe on the freeway, leading to your neighbor dying. And so you see the shady guy taking off the, the lug nuts of your neighbor's car, and instead of doing anything about it, you just go back to watching TV. So you, you could help. You could call the neighbor, write a note. You can do whatever. You could warn the neighbor, but instead you don't do anything. So is God, is he able to, to stop evil from happening? But is he, is he not willing? Then he's malicious. And then therefore the, the last statement, is God both able and willing? Is he all-powerful and is he really good? Then why is there evil? Do you understand the problem at least? And it is a legitimate theological problem and I'll, t- I'll tell you right now that there is no, like, here's the answer. We'll teach you the answer today. Just like in the book of Job, um, the, the book of Job is commonly thought to be, oh, here's, here's, you know, the answer to the problem of evil. And as we've studied this month, you realize more and more in-depthly that the book of Job has more questions than it does answers. And, um, and so, so many atheists, many people that do not believe in God, would say maybe their reason for not believing in God is something bad happened to them. And they would say, where is this all-powerful good God when this bad thing happened? Obviously, he's, he's not all good or he's not um, all-powerful or else he would have stopped this horrible thing from happening. And if you want to learn more about that argument and, and what Christianity has to say to that argument, you could look at, let's say, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis or you could get on YouTube and watch uh, some of the arguments by Ravi Zacharias, uh, a, a very famous apologetist that lives today, and, um, and, and realize that you know, claiming that there is evil is claiming that there's something to compare evil to, a.k.a. good. And if there is a true good in this earth, then that must have come from outside of itself. There must be a moral law giver. And if there's a moral law giver, we can call that thing or that being God that gave us a moral law differentiating between evil and good, and, and, and so on goes this very long and complicated argument. But what well, we don't have time to get into that today. We just have time, barely even if that, to talk about evil. And the question, what is evil? And maybe you were here a couple of months ago. We talked about how there's only two things in this whole world. We talked about a couple of months ago, I think we talked about evolution and creation. We talked about how we as Christians are creationists. And then there's maybe some debate about, you know, whether you're an old earth or a young earth or a, a progressive evolutionist or a theistic evolutionist. We talked about there's, there's lots of um, d- debates within Christianity. But we would all say as Christians, if you're truly a Christian, you would say that God is creator, that he made what there is, that, that, that there wasn't pre-existing things before God. God is, always was, always will be. And we talked about this idea of there being two stuffs. Do you remember that? Anybody here for that? Remember we talked about two stuffs? That's yeah, coming back, maybe. And, and we talked about how everything is either God or God's creation. And so, what is evil? Is evil uh, uh, an aspect of God? Or is evil something God did God create? Evil? And it just kind of messes with your mind if you really take into consideration that, yeah, there was nothing pre-existing God that was God, and then out of him came everything that is in existence. And so where does evil come from? And I think something that's helpful to think about is, is how you define evil and asking yourself, what is evil? Maybe you've heard this analogy before, but evil is like darkness. There is no such thing as darkness. It's actually just the absence of light. Or evil is like cold. Have you heard this analogy before? That evil is uh, like cold. Cold is just the absence of heat energy. And so it's the existence of, well, it's kind of like evil would be the going in a different direction from God. And maybe God allowed space or free will for you to turn away from God. And if you turn away from God, that is what evil is. It's, it's, It's a rejection of the lawgiver. It's a rejection of the creator. And so that, 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 I guess that kind of makes sense in, in some ways that evil is the, the reaction of the walking away from God. And so if you in your life, you know, walk away from God, maybe evil things will happen to you. If you, if you sin, um, if you, you know, go down a dark path, then, then darkness will surround you. You'll be, you know, evil things, your suffering may happen to you because you're walking away from God. But then, like, what about um, things that seemingly happen to innocent people, like, uh, a baby dying, or, you know, why did your mom have to die of cancer? Couldn't God have stopped that? We, we still have these questions about, okay, if we define evil as moving away from God, what about these acts of God 
that happen and suffering happens to those that seemingly weren't trying to walk away from God. And, and, and we'll kind of get to some themes in that. But, but first I wanted to talk about, to kind of frame the idea some more, to talk about what uh, the problem, answers to the problem of evil that are wrong answers to the problem of evil. And this, this may be on your notes if you want to write some of these down because these things, um, I have three of them. They're not just like the three, but they're the three that I think are the biggest wrong answers to the problem of evil. Different religions have these wrong answers. Uh, maybe you individually have contemplating these wrong answers to the problem of evil. But either all three of these in some way go against either God's goodness or God's all-powerfulness. And we do believe that God is good. Amen? And we do believe that God is all-powerful. Amen? Okay, and so all, truly all-powerful and truly all-good, then here's some wrong answers to that problem. Number one is dualism. Dualism kind of says that there's two dueling forces. Imagine yourself, uh, or imagine watching a duel between maybe two sword fighters or something like that, that, that there's an, a side of evil and that there's a side of good. So that's dualism, like God versus Satan. And so they're dueling it out. Or maybe a better example would be uh, like in Hinduism, there's, there's kind of good gods and then there's kind of destroyer gods like Shiva. And there's uh, like maybe the Greek gods, there's good gods like maybe Zeus is kind of good. And then Hades is kind of this bad god that you know, controls death. And, and so whoever's winning at the time, if, if, if the good god is winning, then maybe good stuff is happening in your life. And maybe if you've given some, some, the power of darkness some energy in your life, then, then the darkness is winning in your life, and that's why you're suffering. But that's a wrong answer. Do you realize why it's a wrong answer to us as Bible-believing Christians? Because God is all-powerful. And if God is all-powerful, then it's like Satan or the, the works of the evil one are like a little ant, and God could just crush a little ant, any power that, that Satan or an evil spirit might have is, is given to it by or maybe allowed to have that power by God. It's not like Satan could win against God. No, God is all powerful. He created Satan. And so we do not believe in, in a war between good and evil. And, and when goodness wins, good things happen in our life and we get sweet cars and money and uh, health. And when evil powers win in our life, then, um, you know, evil powers win over God. That, that's the big differentiation here, that somehow evil can overcome God, then, then bad stuff happens in our life. And we would say, no, that's, that's not right. The Bible says that God is all-powerful and Satan is a mere creation. So that's a wrong answer to the problem of evil. The next one is this, this idea. If you're writing things down, you can just write, there is no evil. And, you, and you'd think about that and say, you know, there, there are some religions or very Eastern thoughts that would say, this whole world, everything in it is all just made up. It's, it's, does anybody see the movie Matrix a long time ago? You probably saw it when you were in kindergarten. I was like in college or something. Um, anyways... Uh, the, in the Matrix, the, there's, there's the, the world that is surrounding you, that, that's blinding your eyes, is a fake world. It actually doesn't exist. The real world is like you're in a swimming pool of your own juices with like wires connected to you, right? And so that's the real world. And so this world really doesn't exist. And so therefore, there's no good, there's no evil, etc. One of the big things of uh, maybe some of you are familiar with Christian scientists who I always joke, please don't be offended, um, but Christian scientists, that religion is kind of like grape nuts. Grape nuts are neither grapes nor nuts. Christian scientists. <laughs> Anyways, um, uh, Christian scientists believe that there is no reality, that this world, this earth, actually does not exist. And so the only thing that does exist is God and all things, and you can actually become, enter into God when you die, if, you know, you live this world according to some of the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy. And so, and her big thing was like healings, like you, you know, you don't have a toothache right now because there is no tooth. You, you, nothing is real. And so you don't even need to go to the doctors because the doctors doesn't even exist. There is no reality. There is no present. Like in the words of Neo, there is no spoon. It doesn't exist. And so therefore, 
evil doesn't exist. But we as Christians would say, that's a wrong answer to the problem of evil because suffering really does exist. We would say Jesus really did suffer. Jesus is real. Our own life is real. When we suffer, it actually hurts. It is real. We can't just stop thinking about it like, dude, your arm is cut off. Don't worry, it's not real. The arm's not real. You're like, man, it hurts. It's real. Like you can't pinch yourself and wake up. This world is real. Consequences and things that happen in this world are real. So that is a wrong answer to the problem of evil. And similarly, this, this one and two and three might be very related in some ways. But three says it's all good. And so you'd consider that God is good and that everything that happens, God is sovereign over everything that happens because God is sovereign and good. Everything that happens is, in fact, good. And maybe you've had some experiences in your life where things just kind of work out. Like, you come to an elevator, the elevator's broken. You're like, dang it, now I have to walk upstairs. But you're like, well, maybe this is actually a good thing because I need the exercise. Or maybe you're, you're late for a flight and you miss your flight. You're like, man, I have to spend the next five hours in this airport waiting for the next flight. This stinks. I'm suffering. There's nothing to do here, but playing my laptop. This is horrible. Um, whatever. That was a joke. Everybody lighten up. Uh, so you're just like, oh, I'm suffering in the airport. But then you find out that the plane that left that you actually missed um, had mechanical problems, had to land in a podunk airport, and they were actually 24 hours from getting fixed and arriving at the destination. So you actually arrived there first. And so you just talk about like, oh, maybe God works. And there is that verse, and we'll talk about that later, that God works out for the good, those who seek him, right? And so every, you, but that's kind of different than this wrong answer, because everything would just be redefined to goodness. Like anything that happens is good. And, and to that, that's a definitely wrong problem, because no one would say, Oh, your mom died of cancer. That, that's actually a good thing. No, it's not. A drunk driver hits you and now you're paralyzed for the rest of your life. That's actually a good thing. Well, no, it's not. That's, that's suffering. That's, that's something that bad that happened. Or someone hijacks a plane and crashes it into a building in New York City. You, you don't say, oh, that's a good thing. No, you, you would say that's an evil thing and evil is real in this world and, and evil is, is a real thing and it's real and it's not good. And so these, are, these three are wrong answers to the problem of evil. And from there, we, we, we think about the book of Job, who in this book of Job, maybe before studying it or really reading it, you think, oh, the book of Job is a nice story. First of all, you're wrong there because it's not very nice. So we've, we've been studying this book, and it's not, it's not kid-friendly. It's not uh, easy to read, and it's not nice. It's very mysterious, and it's very, very deep. And so you could come to this book and think, oh, it's, it's a nice story, which it isn't. It's a nice story about the problem of evil and how God answers the problem of evil. And it's not really an answer to the problem of evil. It supplies more questions than it does answers. And so we have many questions about this problem of evil, why God would allow bad things to happen, while an all-good and powerful God would, would allow something bad for you to suffer. And so I thought now may be a good time to, maybe you're sitting there thinking, gosh, I, I, have, I have something to say. I have kind of an idea to bring to the table about why God would allow evil to happen. And so let's, let's provide just a few minutes uh, for discussion. So be bold, just join a group, you know, get into a group, talk to complete strangers. That's fun. It's, it's how you work on social skills and community. And uh, here's the question. The question is, uh, what ideas can we throw at? And so it's a figurative, like, what ideas? And maybe you're sitting there with some ideas. What ideas can we throw at this problem of evil to maintain God's goodness? Because God is truly good, amen, and he is truly omnipotent. That's a big Sunday school word for he is all-powerful. And so God is all-powerful, and he's all-good. What can we throw ideas, like maybe not full direct answers, but what ideas can we throw at this problem? And so, um, ready, get set, go. If you're willing to uh, stand up and, and share something with all of us, I know it's usually not the easiest thing to do, and, and this is a, also a very hard question uh, to communicate about. And so, um, so I, I wonder if there's some people with some mics uh, on either side, get their attention. Uh, if you could stand up and, and share maybe some ideas that you could throw at this problem, still maintaining that God is all good and all powerful. Yes, thank you for starting us off. 
Okay, well, the idea um, that I was uh, thinking was that, um, okay, so God created us as immortal creations. All right, the body we have, it dies, he knows this, we all know this, but it doesn't end us. Now, sin is something that is defined by what we do in disobedience for what God has told us to do. But that's because we don't have a perspective as to what God's plan is. We don't have the right to control somebody else to kill another person. We don't have the right. We don't have any view to be able to say what was good or bad. But God, on the other hand, is the creator of all that is and defines that which is good. So therefore, whatever he does cannot be bad because it was his plan. And since God never really does anything to destroy us it's not really a sin it's not like he's actually hurt anybody you yeah. know he smites somebody it doesn't but god doesn't isn't the one doing them. it he's maybe just allowing it. he knows about it right and in, okay. in the end those people that were smote still exist sodom and gomorrah they're all they existed god created them and when they died their body died so what was the sin? What was the evil that was yeah. done to these people? Okay. So, I mean, it, by that, it, it's, it's like it's saying that now, here, does not exist. It's like that. But it's really more that it is not, it is not God's creation which he lives in and defines God. It is what defines us. That's so good. that's why his rules are yeah. what's important. That's so. good. Who else wants to share this hand back there? I think what he, to, ra- to wrap up what he said... Um, Two things I heard, at least, that one, the things that happen, the bad things that happen, maybe God is just allowing them. And number two, there is an afterlife. There is a world to come that, that will, things will be made right. And yes. Who, who's, yes, Matthew, go ahead. Okay, to try and sum up uh, my table's idea, it's, first off, we have to understand that when we ask the problem of where is God in this situation, we're, we're looking at it from the situation. It's kind of like trying to see the forest through the trees. It's... Mm-hmm. A, a lot of people have heard that phrase and that it's it, it's hard to see God in the moment. It's hard to see God in the heat of something that's going wrong. It was hard for Job to see God's plan and God's justice yeah. where he was at. And another thing to look at is the fact that that one instant, that one moment, even this lifetime, this isn't the end game. This isn't where all things are brought to justice. This isn't the harvest time. Yeah. This is uh, um, this is just a momentary blip in our existence of eternity. Because mm-hmm. I mean, all the problems that come up that I saw with all the arguments against why God can't be all good if He is all powerful and evil exists is because they totally and completely forget the fact that God is also all knowing. Mm-hmm. He sees the forest. He sees beyond the forest. Yeah. He, he sees that one instant, and he sees what he's going to do with it. A friend of mine's dad recently died, and he was a good Christian guy. Just went to Mass every Sunday, just devoted follower of Christ. And every day he prayed for his uh, um, family to fall in love with God the way he has. Yeah. And you see a guy like that die, and you're just like, God, how can you be all good? But... As a result of his death, his entire family started going to church. Mm. So God and worked I mean, out something for good, I hear you saying, and I hear you saying that the problem is more mysterious than we can know, the forest yeah. and the trees. Yeah, thank you. It's good. Uh, yes, ma'am. Pass the mic back to her, and then maybe one more after her. I'm citing other people's ideas. Okay. <laughs> the first one would be that the existence of evil in its existence is not just prove the existence of God. It's just yeah. you've got God and you've got goodness and you've got evil. But to quote somebody else, they were saying that if God is the embodiment of all goodness, then the greatest act of goodness a good being could do is to create other beings that could partake of his goodness yeah. and truly experience his goodness. Mm-hmm. But for them to experience this, it would have to come with a choice. Because having that choice is good. Yeah. So if we have a choice to choose God, we can also choose the absence of goodness. We can choose the absence of God. Yeah. And within that, as creative beings created in the image of God, as he's creating us to experience his goodness, we have this creative capability. And I can choose to create within the absence of God's goodness. And within that absence, I create evil. That humans create evil 
God didn't make it. He can permit it and rule over it because it's a consequence that I chose. That's good. Very articulate. Basically, the idea of free will, that we could choose to go against God. Thank you very much. Yes. Anybody else? Yes, in the very front. You could have the last word. Uh, last last week, we kind of had the same discussion. And during worship, a lot of the songs are about grace and the cross. And yeah. I think when we look as Christians, this doesn't address the question, but in my mind, it answers it. Christ went to the cross. Justice was ultimately served there. He said, I know this is a problem, but I will make the solution. And he says, I will die. I will suffer. Take all your sins. Justice was served at the cross. And ultimately, he says, I have paid for that sin, for all this evil, I will pay for. In some ways, you know, as the creator, he could step back and said, I'm going to let you guys go. You humans, you picked evil, screw you. It's your choice. Go on and just kill each other. But he says, I will still be active. I choose to be active in history. And he said, I will step in and become that answer to all this. Um, As a kid growing up, you always hear the story about Jesus wept. You know, it always frustrated me. I always thought, you know, when pastors get up and say, well, he's simply feeling the pain in the moment. To me, that's not a good answer because it's like, he knew what he was going to do an hour later. I'm like, yeah. that just is not a good answer. And you, you read the story. He had two emotions. He got, he wept, but he was angry. And it doesn't, why would he get angry if he knew what was going to happen? I believe as a, as a good guy, he sat there and said, I understand what's going on here, but this was not the way it was supposed to be. He gets angry at human suffering. And he says, he wept. I believe that's why he wept. He didn't weep because he knew what he was going to do. He wasn't feeling their pain. Ultimately, he said, this was not the plan. The plan was for, for good things for you. And he, at that moment, said he was weeping and he was angry at human suffering. So to me, the cross is the ultimate answer to questions like this. Yeah, thank you very much, Brandon. I think that that is where we're going. I think that is the best theme in in answering the problem of evil which we will come back to that in just in just a few minutes um and so i want to give you some themes in answering the problem of evil and and you all just stood up and and gave some great themes and so i'm gonna i'm gonna categorize them in in five different ways and i want to say that these are just themes in answering the problem of evil these are not answers by any means Um, But they help us come at some sort of conclusion as to why an all-good and all-powerful God would allow suffering to happen. And and once again, they're just themes. I always... Um, I teach the, the New Life School of Worship, and I teach a theology class for them. And when we go over the problem of evil, I always put a question kind of on the midterm or on the final exam that kind of tricks them. And I'll say something like, the answer to the problem of evil is, and I'll, and I'll put one of these uh, five things up. And, um, and, and the, the, the trick about it is that it's not an answer. It's just a theme in answering the problem of evil. And so here we go. The five themes, these aren't the themes by any um, any categorizing them, but they're just five of them that I found that are very helpful in coming to some conclusions about the problem of evil. Some of these are the ones you mentioned, like free will. Uh, that somehow free will is, is necessary because for God to truly show his love to us and for us to truly love God, there has to be something else to choose. Imagine a bride and a groom getting married, but the, the groom, someone is holding a gun to the groom's head, making him get married to his wife. Do they truly love each other? No, he's just, he has to get married because he's either get married or die. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. And so like God giving us free will to, to choose him, to choose what is good or to walk away and to choose what is evil, God maybe created space for us to choose what was wrong in his true love for us. And that, that's somewhat of a theme in answering the problem of evil, but it's not the answer because then you come to things and questions like, well, what about, you know, suffering or, or evil that happens from something you didn't necessarily choose, like a bad guy coming into the, your house and stealing your stuff? Like, you know, that wasn't, like, I didn't choose that myself. I wasn't, it just happened to me. And so maybe a bigger idea within free will, I think maybe a subsection, is that in the fall, in this, this story of God's good and perfect world that he called good, humans 
were created into the world, humans ultimately chose evil for all of humanity, and the whole world has fallen, and the earth itself is fallen, and bad stuff happens like hurricanes or tornadoes that take away Job's ten children. Those bad things that lead to suffering are because the world is not perfect, because humans ultimately freely chose to disobey God. So that's number one, at least in the list that I've made here, uh, a theme for answering the problem of evil. And I heard that among some of you as you stood up and answered. So the next one, God works everything out. So I heard this theme amongst some of you as you shared, that God works everything out for his good. And there is that verse, a very famous verse, Romans eight twenty eight, which says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Do you know that verse? It's a good verse. Maybe some of you have memorized that verse in, as a kid in Sunday school, or maybe you'll go out and memorize that verse. It's a very cool verse. It's a very refreshing verse. It brings somewhat, under, somewhat of um, this bigger purpose that God will ultimately work out for good the suffering um, that, that potentially his servants undergo. And maybe another verse like Romans 5, 3 that says this, maybe some of you have memorized this, but says that we should glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And so out out of suffering, we get character and hope. And those are things that that, um, come out of suffering. And maybe Elihu, in the book of Job, the fourth friend, the youngest friend of Job's, he comes to Job and says, you know, we don't you know why God is doing all this, but God is just and God will speak and uh, consider the creation. And at one point, Elihu says, you know, the bad things that happened to you, Job, maybe happened because um, they're, 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 they prevent you from living in evil. That somehow the badness or suffering is, gives us soberness about life and a respect for God and his goodness in some sort of mysterious way that is deeper than what we can understand. And so, um, ultimately, suffering is, is worked out by God, and potentially it works out. And, and that is not saying the wrong answer for the problem of evil, that there is no evil or that it is all just good. No, this truly embodies this, you know, that suffering does happen. Suffering is bad, and, but God will somehow work that out. Does that make sense? So it's definitely not an answer to this huge problem of, of God allowing, you know, like an earthquake to happen and millions of people dying in an earthquake or being affected by it. You know, why couldn't God have stopped that if he's all powerful? Yeah, he could have. But then did he just watch it happen and, you know, he just let all that suffering happen? Well, that's, this still isn't that great of an answer because, like, what good comes out of millions of people affected by uh, uh, an earthquake or something? Is that maybe some good came out. Maybe some people uh, come to Christ through their suffering, but maybe some reject God. And so it doesn't, maybe it doesn't all work out in some way, but maybe it works out for those that, that God um, are in God's plan. And so, anyways, that, that's just some thoughts. Uh, it doesn't really that make that much sense as a, as a true answer to the problem because we don't know that there is an answer to the problem of evil. Number three, retribution theology is this idea. If you're, if you're taking notes, you could say specific evil for f- specific sins. Like you decide to uh, get drunk and then go out for a drive and you hit a telephone pole and bust up your car. Well, that was a dumb sinful choice of getting drunk and driving and and that's the consequences of it could have been worse or uh you lie at work and then you get fired it's like oh i'm suffering because i got fired well you're suffering because you lied and and that that was a wrong thing to do and so it's specific evils for specific sins you specifically sin and you specifically get an evil back and that sometimes is the case like we could think in our own lives like i made a bad choice and it led down a path and i received what i i i you know, I reaped what I sowed in that situation. But that doesn't always work out to be the case. Bad things happen to seemingly innocent people. People that are good, you know, have bad days just as much as people that are uh, good. They have bad days just as much as people that are bad. They have bad or good days. And, and so Job's friends, if you remember from an earlier lesson, if you were here, we talked about how Job's friends are really big in retribution theology. They said, Job, you must have sinned because you're getting 
sin or evil or suffering placed upon you. So what did you do wrong? And of course, Job didn't do anything wrong. He was the most righteous man in all of uh, the East. And, and God tells Satan that he's the most righteous. He is, he's blameless. And yet suffering still comes to Job. And so the answer to the problem of evil, retribution theology, works out in some cases, but not all cases. This is not cut and dry example that if you do wrong, wrong will come to you in the equal and opposite way. And if good happens to you, then you'll have a nice house and a BMW. Like that's, it doesn't work out that way. There's really good people that don't have BMWs, if you can believe that. All right, anyways. Um, Number four, someone mentioned this, the afterlife that God will work all things out for the good, that there is suffering in this world. And if you're a really bad person and you live at the expense of others and you, you reject God and you pillage people and take advantage of them and treat them horribly, well, there is an afterlife and there is a God who will judge the, the sins that have been committed. And so maybe not on this, this life. You know, I think of people that are like drug dealers and stealing money. They always got like big wads of cash. Like how are they doing so much evil and injustice and yet they're so rich? Well, there is an end to, to everyone's life. There is a judge and people will have to pay for the sins that they've committed in the afterlife and, and God will judge everyone according to what they've done. And so that is maybe somewhat of a, a hope for those that have been wronged that in the end God will um, retribute them or judge those that have wronged them. But it still doesn't really answer the question, you know, why did it have to happen at all? Why couldn't God have stopped it? Where was God in all of that? And so here we come to the fifth and final um, point. This is what we will end the entire book of Job with. This is what we will conclude today with. And it, I think it, out of all of these answers, and I say answers with quotations because they are themes, not answers, this one is the least of the answers. It's least like an answer, but I think brings the most comfort to those that are suffering, brings the most rest in mind to, to why bad things happen to good people. Why did Job have to suffer even though he was the most righteous and it has to do with what we began Sunday school with the idea of a mediator or a true good lawyer that stands between a person and the and the law a true good truly good umpire that stands between a person and and the rules of the game and it has to do with Jesus and and Jesus is in fact God and so I wrote it like this I said God as the victim of sin God as the victim of sin. This idea that we could bring to the table and say, um, you, you know that God himself became a human being and truly suffered for our sin. He, he truly took the justice when, when, when we sin and we make mistakes and all of humanity sinned in Adam, that, that, that the first man, that, that all of it comes to the cross and God himself suffers. I think Christianity is the only religion where God himself suffers and suffers to death for his people. And as we picture Jesus on the cross and the events leading up to that, you know, we could, we could think about someone who is suffering. And if, if you're suffering or you're, you've been through a time of suffering, maybe you're, you're screaming out, why? Why would this happen? Well, we know that Jesus on the cross screamed out, why? Why? Why, God, why? We do know that, you know, if you've lost a loved one, you know, on the cross, Jesus is this ultimate picture of a father losing his only son. And so God himself lost a loved one that day on the cross. He, he was in himself God and, and, and a son there, two distinct persons, yet they were one. And this, this we can't grasp this idea of the separation between God the Father and God the Son on the cross. But that's what happened. There was suffering and true um, just departation of the Godhead and, and like God giving up himself and truly dying. We can't truly understand that, but it, maybe you, you've ever bartered with God in a time of suffering. And God, if you take this away, then I'll do this. You know, I'll start living for you. If you just take this away, if there's any other way. And we know that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, prayed a prayer like that to God, didn't he? He said, you know, if this cup be taken from me, God, any other way, but, but your will be done. And he was is somewhat, you know, in the moment of suffering, truly suffering, our God on the cross. 
suffering being a true mediator between us and God, that, that Job crying out for a lawyer, a mediator, an umpire, different translations of the same Hebrew word, God ultimately came down and suffered and took on the role of a mediator, took on the role of, of a suffering God for us. And is that, you know, since the cross happened 2,000 years ago, there is still suffering, isn't there? Still, so it didn't answer, truly answer, or take away the problem of evil. And so it's not an answer, like, like I've been saying, but it is this idea that we can rest in, this, this question that we can ask, this question maybe that we do ask in times of suffering. Where is God? Does God even care about what's happening to me? We look at the cross and, and, and we have to say that God does care. God is there to those. He is close to those that are suffering. And God is close to Job. And as we're reminded as we conclude this book, that Job, in the midst of, of his suffering, in Job 19, he says that his Redeemer lives. And I began Sunday school, um, at least my talk, the book of Job, I began this month in the same place that we'll end right now with this. The, what just happened a few weeks ago, a, a funeral that I and Aaron Stern did for parents of two baby twin girls that died. And I read for them uh, this passage in the book of Job and explained that, you know, Job is ultimately hoping and, and knowing that God will come and speak to him. And yet God comes before Job dies. This passage in it, I, and I'll read it in a second. Job is saying that after he's dead, he will experience God. But what I shared at this funeral was that in the midst of Job's suffering, God shows up, surprises Job. Job knows that he will see God when he dies. But Job in his suffering gets to see God. And so these words is where we'll, we will end the book of Job in this study. Job nineteen twenty three. Oh, that my words were written down, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth. And then even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this book of Job. We thank you that, that God, you are good, that you are just, that you are all-powerful. We, we know these things to be true because of the word you've given to us. And God, we, we understand that there's a mystery of why bad things happen, but we do know that you care about us. We do know that you are there. We do know that you suffered like, like more than we could ever suffer. And God, you took what we, what we deserve. We deserve justice and, and wrong because we've done wrong to you, but you took that upon yourself and we praise you. We thank you. We worship you as a true, loving, just, and good God. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, everyone, peace out. We will not see you next week because there's no Sunday school because of leadership, but we'll see you the week after. We'll talk about early church history. Peace.